Welcome to the Nobody Told Me That podcast. My name is Teresa Duncan, and my goal is to share information that you probably weren't thinking about. I love preparing my friends for situations that may come completely out of the blue. I also want to share with you many of the tidbits I picked up over the years. If you absolutely have to tune out before the end of the show, make sure you check out the show notes for more details and information on today's topic. And thank you so much for making me a part of your day. We are back with another episode of Nobody Told Me That. I'm super excited. I have Judy K. Mozoff with me. How are you this morning? I'm awesome. I can't wait to chat with you. Ooh, you guys, if you have been to ADOM and if you have been to any management courses or actually any real big meetings, you've probably seen Judy K.'s name up in the lights. She speaks all around the country. She does culture camps with doctors. And quite frankly, most of you already know who she is. She's a good friend and one of those people that I can really just talk honestly. I just said to her, I don't know why we don't talk more often because I feel like this every time I talk to her, but you're going to get a whole dose of her and and I'm just excited. So are you ready for me to just like ask you a million questions? I'm ready. Away. So COVID happened. You know, we all just kind of watched our events and gigs kind of evaporate. That was a little bit traumatic, I think, right? For you too? Very much so. Yeah. So what ended up happening is you actually continued working, though. Once you were able to travel, you kept doing some culture camps. That's your signature offering is to go into offices and help them with their culture because that's what you're good at. What goes on in a culture camp? And then I have a lot of questions for you for what you're finding. But what goes on in a culture camp? Well, first of all, just to clarify, I kept busy, but I will tell you that all my speaking, anything to do with speaking, anything to do with an audience was like within two weeks gone. So... So it wasn't like as if I wasn't affected. And culture camps came, you know, I probably was not working for about a month and a half. And then I started um, getting back on the road again in May. And that was kind of creepy, honestly. I mean, flying out of Atlanta airport with, there was nobody there. It was, it was spooky, honestly. See, it sounds like a dream, but you're right. It would be like apocalyptic. Like you're thinking, okay, what's going on here? I thought of the movie Soylent Green. Honestly, I kept hearing... The loudspeakers talking about keep your mask on, distance, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, we're all going to die. <laughs> kind of laughing about this. I called my husband, Steve. I go, this is creepy. Because Atlanta is usually packed. It's body to body. It's like going to a state fair, right? Yeah. And there was no place to eat. There's no So you really had to be mindful about bringing stuff with you because you didn't know what was open, what was closed. So it was, it was funky. I have to link Soylent Green in the notes because... You know, the younger people have no idea what we're talking about. It happens all the time with my podcast. We make references to these things and I'm like, oh, they don't know what we're talking about. It's an old movie, Charlton Heston's in it. The only thing I remember from that is when he goes, well, I remember a lot, but the one thing I remember is they're people because, and that's, I'm not going to to spoil it, but you'll understand if you watch the movie. (laughs) And that's how I felt when I saw people walking. I was like, oh, I'm not the only one here. That's funny. So culture camps really are to help a team launch a happier, healthier, higher performing culture. It really is about um, uh, looking at how they work together, how they lead as doctors, managers, how the team, um, how they hold themselves accountable, you know, attitude on a daily basis, 
And what are the things that create the stress? What are the things that get in the way? Because I mean, people, honestly, they want to show up and have a good day. They don't come in planning, well, very, very few come in planning to be the potster or the troublemaker or the Tasmanian devil, as I like to call it, right? They, they come in and then something happens and they get derailed. So it's really about helping um, teams and practices work together in creating a um, more consistent and realistic culture that they can be happier in. And then talking about some agreements that they make together as a team on how they're going to communicate. You know, we have systems and strategies for all of our clinical, all of our um, procedures, but we really don't talk about expectations on how we're going to communicate, how we're going to work together. Um, what do we do if there's a conflict? How do we address it? You know, none of these things get talked about as a rule up front until something happens. Well, then it's already personal. So it's really about making agreements uh, in a safe environment. It's a usually a two-day um, type of thing. First day is observation. Second day is no patience and just co-creation. I lead based on core values that the doctors or you know, owner doctors give me. And then we build around that. And so, because I always say, I'm not the one working there. They are. What did they need as a team working together? And it works out really well. And at night, I meet with the leadership team and hold them accountable for their responsibility because we know, Teresa, everything starts from the top. Absolutely. And the real work happens when we leave. Yes. I have so many thoughts on what you just said. The one thing that I think about is when you said the communication systems, uh, you know, what are the expectations? What seems to me is that the person with the strongest communication style, that ends up being the default communication style of the office. And it's usually not a great thing if it's one of those very forceful type things. What did you call it? The pot stirrer? Tasmanian devil, yes. I yeah. used to call it the drama llama. There was always a drama llama in the office. Yeah, they get on my nerves. So I'm glad you're handling them, not me. <laughs> Do you find that though, that there's one overbearing communicator that you have to almost reprogram or is how does that usually work if you have somebody that's like the more dominant one? Again, I'm going to go back to leadership. A lot of this stems from what leadership allows or enables. Okay. Usually the person that if they are toxic or stressful or almost a bullying type of behavior to the coworkers, they're usually actually a very good performer. They're actually very good with the patients. They usually shine in front of the doctor. They might be the best assistant. They might be the hygienist that tees up treatment and does phenomenal, you know, work. So they get a pass from the doctors a lot of times because they don't want to lose that great performer. And so they've sacrificed it. So drama and all that goes away when it's no longer accepted. You know, when it's addressed and saying, look, and, and my favorite um, standard is to treat each other as well or better than you treat your patients. And I always clarify, it doesn't mean lowering how you treat your patients. But right. we put the filters down because people say, well, this is just who I am. And I go, really? Well, you don't treat patients like that. Well, no, they're a patient. Well, then why would you treat your coworker that way? Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing how... There are many people who don't even see themselves in that role. They just think that that's acceptable. And when you start to have heart-to-heart conversations, some of them actually even will cry because it's a realization they didn't know they were coming across that way. And no one actually told them either. In fact, they said, well, that's just Susie. She's just direct. Well, when someone says, I'm a direct communicator, I'm like, oh, okay, so you cut people off at the knees, right? Nice. (laughs) And they're like, no, no, I don't. But they do. You're yeah. right. <laughs> it's like, no, you, you know, I'm just direct. And this is how I just say it how it is. Well, okay. So how, how do we make that a little better? For me, it's always about results. What are the results you're getting? Well, not very good. Well, you might want to consider then 
What do you want to change? Do they call you when they're in crisis or do they call you when they're a little bit off of calibration? I've always wondered, like, do you get the calls from the people that are like, oh my God, you need to fix everything? Or do you get the calls from, we just need a touch up? So I will tell you that most of the offices I work with do a really good job. Uh, you know, and then maybe something comes up and they probably have had a really good culture. And then the mix of people, you know, people are like pieces of a puzzle that come together and sometimes they fit well. And sometimes it takes them accommodating. And if you have a team that's worked together a long period of time and understands, they kind of go with the flow, but then you bring in some newcomers, which is happening a lot now. For sure. All of a sudden, then there's different expectations, especially when you see a lot of different age differences as well. You know, you start to see some different expectations. But I will say I've had a few Hail Mary type of calls like, hey, we, <laughs> our entire team is going to quit. But that's not the norm. Okay. Normally, it's like we've got some problems. We're uncomfortable. We've seen you speak. We like that you're not threatening. You make it enjoyable. And yet you, you cover things. My friend Lois always calls me the velvet hammer. <laughs> I can totally see that with a smile on your face. I can yeah, see that. We're going to do it. The whole thing about the offices in crisis, I can imagine they don't even know that they need no. a culture camp. You know, I always just wondered. I mean, your pictures are always so happy with the teams and all that, but I know everybody smiles in the pictures. So I always just wonder, you know, how was it beforehand? The whole crying piece, because that was a big part of the very hardest conversations, there was always tears because somebody was not meeting an expectation. And, right. and that's, you know, they got to drive home and I go on a plane and they're, they're home obsessing about it. And I call them like two weeks later for something else. And they're like, oh my God, I can't stop thinking about it. And then I feel bad because that's all they thought about. So I'm glad there's people like you that are much better at it. That's part of like the day when I'm observing that is I'm having candid conversations with each individual team member. And it really is about asking them, what different results? I'm always asking that. So the verbiage I use is if I could wave a magic wand and make things better here, what would that look like for you? Mm. And so it's the same question, but it, it goes many, many different directions, depending upon who I'm talking to. And sometimes people have so much built up because no one has asked them that. And so they just cry. And I always say, oh, and they apologize and they feel embarrassed. And I go, oh, your eyes are just leaking. It's not a problem. <laughs> You know, and I hand them a, a tissue because sometimes they just need that release. And I don't know about you. Sometimes my eyes leak when I don't want them to, right? Absolutely. I think it's the energy of which you bring conversation is huge. I'm never coming from a place of judgment or criticism. I'm trying to come from a place of care and concern. And how do I make, I sincerely want to help make your life better. And I think that they understand that. And I think that that's, that's the starting ground. You know, people always say, what's the, what's the system you use for that? I go, it's not. There's not a system. You actually got to give a dang. And you're helping them with cementing that and getting better with that yeah. in their, their office. I do want to talk about the whole industry and being able to find good people and hiring. But I have a question back to the culture camp. If you have now a whole bunch of new team members, are doctors and managers really almost excited to have a blank slate? Are you hearing that from people that, oh, I have a new team and now we can do this, this and this? Is that something that's coming up? Sometimes I hear we're worried that the new team members will be tainted by the existing ones. Well, that always happens, right? There's always one like Ursula up at the front desk that like, I know it's your first day, but you got to watch out for Judy back there. <laughs> you know, she gets a little uppity sometimes. You just let her do her thing. That's really what somebody wants to hear on their first day. Are you kidding yeah. me? So, Well, and that's why it's so important. I say if, if you're, and I, I talk about this when I'm presenting at a convention as well, or study club group or whatever. 
And I always say, if you're worried about a new team member coming on, then you have some homework to do with your existing team members. Just because they were great 10 years ago and now they've worked with you and they're less disengaged, they're more disengaged, doesn't mean that you will, you still have to have standards because your new people are going to get to that level as well. If you allow that, you have to set expectations. And if people lose joy and purpose and it's just a job and they don't want to be invested in it, then it's time to make a decision. Loyalty is not loyalty if you're not showing up and engaged. I'm sorry. You're just collecting a paycheck. People go, well, they've been loyal. I go, well, they've stepped in the door and yet they've resisted every change you wanted to make. Here's the most amazing thing to me. There is such a shortage of team members out there, right? Everybody's all worried about that. And yet existing team members, when they bring these new team members in, they're actually hostile to them. (laughs) I'm like, oh, way to build your team by being a jerk to the new team members. I mean, seriously, I'm like, what what are you doing? Is it because they don't expect them to last or they're like resentful that they have to train yet another person? What's going on there? Yes, yes, and yes. They, (laughs) they They didn't want to lose the other person. They're upset that they left. They think the new person has to be exactly like the other person or has to be exactly like them or they're wrong. Oh my gosh, if they bring in a suggestion, ooh, who are you? You know, this is, how, this is the way we always do it here. Mm-hmm. And then in a short time, three weeks, they don't get it. It's like, wait a minute, you're making a judgment in three weeks. What's your training expectations? Oh, we don't have any. We just, we're tired of training them now. Okay, well, maybe it would be important to have some clear expectations of where they should be. And I said, don't take your best training, take the minimum of where someone can be at and make that your gauge for week one, week two, week three, where do they need to be at? So it's not a surprise of three months ago, and I'm sorry, you're not working out here. The position of insurance coordinator is so complicated nowadays. And what I'm hearing is, you know, they brought me on, I need to learn insurance, but this is very hard. And they want them to be like whizzes yeah. within like two weeks. It's almost impossible. It's changing so fast and I have to stay up on it. I can't even imagine expecting a new person to handle everything from soup to nuts. It's like they expect them to be productive like right away and it's just not going to happen. Well, and that's that's key. You know, none of the positions we have in our dental practices are entry level. They really aren't. Nobody just answers the phone and greets. Unless you are a really big organization, you have somebody, and I worked with a practice in Wisconsin where they had someone, because they own the whole building and they had Mm -hmm. four floors and they had somebody who just greeted people when they walked in. Most of us don't have that. And so entry level. So if you're thinking about minimum six months, minimum, more unlikely a year to two years for them to be really trained. A good assistant, usually two years. Completely trained. Yep, exactly. So when, when we're looking at this and they're going, well, they don't know that. Well, did anybody communicate that? Well, no, they should know that. Oh, oh well, how that should work for you versus running and running and telling somebody else that they're not doing something. So, so that's a big part of my job when I'm working with teams is to help them understand how to keep each other in the loop, how to communicate without it looking like they're being bossy because some people are hesitant about that and how to have those open conversations about what do we really need from each other. Right. Put yourself back in the new person. But then the new people also have to understand that coming on board that this has been their culture for years. For you to come in and want to change everything, you need to sit back and just immerse yourself for the first 90 days and learn what they're doing. I used to have a rule. I could give them five passes where they would say, at my old office, we did this, five passes. And then I would say, you know, I I appreciate that you letting me know what's going on and how you learned it, but I need you to focus on how we do it here. 
When I first started saying things like that, though, Judy, I did not say it in quite that manner. So I got better. Were you more direct? (laughs) When I tested with a disc profile, I was a very high D in the beginning. I know that's not a shock to people. After I had Noah, high I. I tell you what, when I had my son, I realized I have no control over anything. And it really had me change. But, you know, my old boss and I, we joke a lot because high D, Teresa was very productive and had the office humming along. We had lots of long-term, we still have tons of long-term employees, but high I, Teresa, we really rocked. The change in my mindset of this is my way or the highway, could have used somebody like you the first five or six years, but I didn't know. I was doing everything. I was the only front desk person. I thought I had to learn everything. And when you come on board, I wanted to clone myself and put myself into you. And that's terrible. What a ridiculous expectation. And I just didn't get that for a long time. Yeah, you should have come to my office. Where were you? (laughs) I was probably working in an office doing the same thing you were doing. (laughs) No kidding. Listeners, Judy Kay and I met at an SCN Speaking Consulting Network meeting like a gazillion years ago. So I feel like we kind of have come up at the same time. There's a group of us, a small group of us that have kind of, it's like a graduating class, you know. So when I circle back and see where we are with our careers, it's just fun thing to look at. Same with like Rita Zamora. I know that's a little bit of a digression, but it shows you that you can change because the high D trees in the beginning, if you would have told any of my coworkers, I was going to be a consultant and a speaker, they would have been on the floor howling with laughter. When I think back and I, I was a manager at the age of 21 and I was so controlled, black and white, mm. I would have never wanted to work for me. I think I ran over people. It was very, what do you mean you have an excuse? Mm-hmm. And I, in a very short time though, what I realized was I wasn't enjoying it. Yeah. And why is the person I'm at home so different than the person I am at work? That's true. People didn't think I had a fun side. And so it was, I read a lot of books. So it was a lot of self-reflection and going, okay. And it's always about results. I'm actually a very impatient person. Mm-hmm. I have found that if I slow down and I do things in a more positive manner on the front end, I get the results much faster than just going, ooh. But that's a leap of faith, right? Because it's not immediate gratification or immediate results. And it's a leap of faith to do that. Whereas if you were to just take the keyboard away from the person who's going really slow on the software, you get it done faster, but you don't realize that you're not doing what you should be doing. And then it's always up to you. And you've just limited your uh, speed to just you. Exactly. Okay. That's a glimpse into the former lives of us. And now we're very different people. (laughs) I'm still a, a D. I was an extremely high D. Mm-hmm. And now I'm a higher I with a D following. I don't think CNS are anywhere even on my radar. Yeah. And in fact, I remember the first time I took that, I was like, CNS, what, what are they doing? Like, and I was like, oh, that makes sense. You're totally a C, one of my assistants. And, and I like, it was like an awakening. Like, oh, that's why you're like that. And I probably said that because I was ridiculous at that point. <laughs> that's why you act that way. Yeah. yeah, that's why you are the way you are. Oh, I get it now. We could have stories like this for a while. <laughs> this is where we need to be at a bar eating nachos, and which is what we used to do on the road. And I haven't seen you. I know. Let's go into the whole the hiring thing. I know that it's hard to find anybody right now. What position are your clients telling you that they're struggling with the most right now? Honestly, I think they're struggling across the board. Okay. I think clinical and business, you know, business, you have a little more flexibility. And for example, hygienists, you have to have the training. You And assistants, depending upon how you utilize them, you know, there's definitely 
uh, and from state to state, it differs greatly too, credentialing and that. But I think they're fearful and they are playing this story over and over in their head is that you can't find anybody. What I'm teaching the clients that I work with in culture camps is that if you create a culture where people are excited to work, you're going to find people. Because there's a lot of offices that are very dysfunctional, that people are very unhappy and they just stay there because they haven't found something better. So there's still a lot of people in the industry, but honestly, there's a lot of unhappy team members in the industry as well. So the more you create an environment people are going to want to work in, the more transparent, the more you include your team, uh, the more they feel like a valuable asset to the practice versus just that person that does what you tell them to do, the, the easier it's going to be for you to find people. And it's also really important to be clear about what you want for that position if you're hiring. Not just put in an ad that you want someone for four days a week or whatever. Describe what kind of personality you're looking for. Describe the personality or the culture of your practice, because that's going to resonate with somebody that maybe isn't feeling like they're a good fit in their practice and going, hey, that sounds like me. I, th- I really like to do that. Writing that purposeful ad that makes sense is really important. I think also defining the tasks and the character traits that are needed. So oftentimes we just run an ad or put it somewhere or, or go on Facebook or, and we're not really clear, you know, it's great to debrief with the team. So the person that left the position, what were their attributes that worked well? What were the things that we would have liked to have seen different, right? Versus it, because that creates some clarity and, and really what are tasks if we're short staffed, what are some tasks that maybe our software can do? Because truthfully, so many offices and I am not the software person. I don't, I'm not even remotely close to that, but I know that they way underutilize what they have. They barely use it. Practices could become so more efficient if they would spend, go yearly and get updates and training on how to use their software better. Because there's only so much they're going to absorb, right? you know, in a certain time. And so many changes they're going to do at one time. So if they became more efficient and effective, there's a lot of things they could do automated that I see that they don't, right? Yeah. I still have the office that will call and say, you know, how long should I be spending on calling and verifying insurances? And I'm like, almost nothing because you should be doing through your software and only calling the, you know, the ones that are like the renegade plans, right? Everybody talks about outsourcing. And the first thing I see on people's faces is, oh, it's going to cost money. I just want them to think about it differently because if it's one less person in the office that you have to, I hate to say it, deal with, I mean, and you have somebody that's going to be accountable. If you ask them for a report of what they've done, they should be able to give it to you instead of you saying, hey, do you mind letting me know where we are with our accounts aging, you know, Amanda, when you have a chance and have you run that report lately? And it's so much nicer to have somebody that you can actually have a results contract with. Right. What else are you seeing that is easy to implement that they may maybe not thinking about? I honestly think that they don't utilize the team that they have. I do this little exercise with teams when I'm facilitating a culture camp and I purposely trick them to think that they have to work in a certain group, right? Because that's how teams come to work. I'm a hygienist. I only do this. I'm an assistant. This is what I do. I'm a business team. This is what I do. So the more cross-training, the more we can do on that, the more important, better the usage of our team. Because there's a lot of idle time where I'll see this team member can't help this one because they don't know how to. That's true. That's a good point. I think cross-training is huge. When people start to say, hey, I could do this. So one of the things that I ask at culture camps is I say, okay, instead of telling people what you need from them, because then people get defensive. I want you to tell each other what you can do for them, right? 
So it's a shift. It's always on the positive side. So when they start talking about it, they're going, oh, we never thought about that. Yeah, you could, that would be great. Okay. I love that. I never thought about doing it. That's, I love that. Because the minute you start saying, I need, then they're like, well, you don't do this for me. <laughs> right? so you, always, you could have emptied that autoclave. You always have to and say, okay, so what could you do for each other? And I get the doctors involved as well. And that makes a big difference when we start to look at it because we are very underutilized. Truthfully, I, I see this all the time in observing. And then there are just some things we're going to need more help with. Or maybe if we are really short staffed, we might need to adjust our schedule for a little bit because there's nothing worse. If you stay same schedule and you're pushing and you have a very limited team, you're, you're down assistance, you're down hygienist, you're down whatever, and you're trying to keep the same level, all you're going to do is you're going to burn out your existing team members. And then you're going to lose even more. So you're going to create a, a worse cycle. Breathe through this. It's, you know, it's just like we had to shut down for a while with COVID. We still, we have to ramp up smartly. Mm-hmm. And so we have to make decisions that where our team is at. If our team, and I hear this all the time, our team is burned out. And I said, so why are you burning them out? And they're like, oh, what do you mean? And I go, well, you have, you can adjust your schedule. What? No, what? Well, that would affect bottom line. I said, well, so will losing all your team and having to hire all new team members. There's no, there's no easy solution, but there are things we can do that would make a less damaging impact. And number one is caring for the team members that are with us that are good. And if you have a team member that isn't good, they shouldn't be with you. And people go, oh, but I can't let them go now because there's such a shortage. No, let them go because you're going to lose your good ones because of the bad ones. Absolutely. You've talked about that for a long time. You have one bad apple and it's just going to drive down the performance of everybody else. Right. Especially if it's a gospel. One of the classes that, I mean, I've, I've snuck into a lot of your classes over time, you know, just because when we're in the same place or at ADOM and all that, whenever you talk about gossip, it's always interesting to hear because the thing is, if you have somebody in there that's allowing gossip, nobody does anything about it. I mean, how can you be surprised when people leave because they don't want to be in that environment? How can you be surprised? And then you hear the excuse, wow, girls just do that. I'm like, no, they don't. Or women just do that. No, they don't. They don't need to. Mean girls do that. And that's where I try to put back. I say, hey, you might be just venting in your mind. You might be just blowing off steam. And it may mean nothing to you. But that person walking by, they all of a sudden don't trust you anymore because you're saying something negative about them. And if you walk by and this person was talking about you in a negative light, you'd be going, whoa, why didn't you just come to me? So you think nothing of it. And, and I get that. Now, some people actually, I'll go back to the pot stirs. Some people actually are trying to divide the team. Sure. But there are a lot of us, you know, that happens where you go, oh, she didn't do it again, blah, blah, blah. she needed to do this. And we tell somebody else because we're afraid to confront the person. We don't want to hurt their feelings, which is the most ridiculous thing. We don't want to hurt their feelings, but we'll trash them to somebody else. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was really friendly. <laughs> so you're a new manager and maybe you're not the high D's that we were. So you're a new manager coming in. You want to do a good job. Okay. Yeah. You want everybody to like you, or maybe you Let's do this. This is more specific and probably more of what happens. You get promoted to manager. So you're now working the same people that you've worked with for a while. You're now in charge of them. They come to you and they're moaning. Now, how do you as a manager say, cut it out when inside you really want to hear it because, you know, you want to hear the scoop. How do you do that shift? Because it's not right. And this is a former friend and you might be going out with them this weekend. You don't want to make it weird. You know what I mean? So you've got to put your manager hat on. If, and, and here's the hard part. There's a very big difference between someone being a very capable manager 
and someone being good at tasks that they do in the business office. And so when someone is good at a task, we have a tendency to promote them as if they would be good at leading people. Amen. And the two don't go hand in hand necessarily. You could be great at what you're doing and run over people because just do it. It's easy for you. So you can't even see the difficulty for someone else. You really need to make sure that the person that you're putting in that position, and if they're stepping up in from another position, they need to get training. They need help with it. Just like we were talking about how different we looked at things. They need someone that's gone down the path so they can, they can leap forward versus having to go through all the mistakes and errors. It's a difficult thing. And it's a, you know, being a manager is it's got its pros and its cons. Mm. You get to lead, you get to help move the practice forward, which is exciting. However, you are on an island. Yeah. People will treat you differently because all of a sudden now you have the right to say something that might affect their career, right? You can't think that you're just the same because you're not. You really aren't. The idea of if you're going to be an effective manager, and this is really important to you, you have to be able to put your manager hat on when you're having the conversation. And even if you socialize with a person and say, hey, okay, so this is going to be a difficult conversation. I know we're friends outside of the office, but I have to put my manager hat on because otherwise it will feel like there's favoritism. Yes. And that's what happens, right? So you would just be very matter of fact. This is how it is in the office. I have my manager hat on. Say I'm... um complaining about Rita, which I of course I would never that darn Rita, I know. <laughs> so you're saying to me, I need to not complain about Rita. I need to, you know, be professional about my complaints about Rita. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? Like last week we were just talking about this. What do you say about that? So if last week I wasn't a manager and this week I am, then I'm gonna have the conversation saying, you know what, last week I was not a manager and you know what, I want to be a good manager. It's really important that people respect you. Like is mm, can come and go. Respect is very different. And the other part is having clear standards, clear expectations for how we interact, right? Part of the problem with people addressing behaviors is there's been no discussion as a team about how they're going to behave in the practice. So everyone comes together with different expectations. So if I tell you that you're doing something wrong, that's just my opinion because it's never been established as a standard. So the clearer it is when we make agreements or standards or whatever you want to call them, if we make agreements as a team that we don't talk about each other, that we go directly to the source, that if you bring something to me about another team member, before I even listen to it as a manager, I'm going to bring that other team member in with that conversation. If we create clear expectations up front, then whether I'm brand new and I was somewhere else before, I just say, hey, these are our agreements. I'm supporting our agreements. It's no longer me saying you shouldn't or you should. It's these are the standards. These are the agreements we made as a team. These are the things I'm responsible for upholding. It's no different than a system or a process for how you do treatment. If somebody deviates from how you sterilize or somebody deviates from how you do this and it's, our, it's written documented that this is how you do it, you just say, hey, remember, this is our standard for this. So can I take it a step further? Yeah, please. So you're like, okay, hold on a second. Let me grab Rita yep. and let's talk about this. And I'm like, oh. This is not what I wanted to happen. Okay. So this is now my thought process. I'm going to either say it's not a big deal or I'm going to just come up with some stupid thing and we'll talk it out or whatever. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to be mad at you. I'm going to be mad at Rita. And let me just be clear. I'm not a bad employee. I just have a gripe. I could be rehabilitated at this point. Don't throw me out. (laughs) You're you're a rider. You're not a resistor. I got it. (laughs) Here's the thing. What do you do as a manager then? Are you checking in or are you like, oh, okay, that took care of it. What do you do at that point? So I think that we get involved and 
people's emotions way too much. Okay. We're not on the school ground. We are professionals. The expectation is not that you have to love the person you're working with. Truthfully, you don't even have to like them. Right. Right. But you have to treat them with kindness and respect and be professional and help them. That's part of the deal. So if you came to me and you were complaining about another team member, the first thing I would say to you is, Teresa, did you talk to Rita about this? And if you said no, then I would ask you why, because we would have already made an agreement as a team that we go directly to the source. And then if you said, it's just too hard for me to approach her, I, I'm uncomfortable doing that, then I would say, okay, then let's, let's meet together because the goal is that we resolve things, not to build, because if you don't address it, it's just going to build and build and build and build sure. until there's a explosion, or you quit or the other person quits. Right. This mentality that we have the right to be angry because someone wanted us to address something is ridiculous. For me, it's about sharing with the team up front when we're in these culture camps about expectations and having them see it maybe in a little different light than how they looked at it before. If you're going to come to a doctor or manager with a gripe about another team member, the expectation is that it's resolved. It isn't resolved by you complaining about it. It only perpetuates it. If you don't have the desire to resolve it, then don't come and tell me about it because I'm not going to sit on my hands. And so many times people will come to the manager or doctor and go, well, this is going to, but you can't say anything because they'll know it was for me. I'm sorry, but that's not how it works. Right. right. It's a ridiculous expectation because you're supposed to look out for the practice. That's your job. So it starts with creating those ground rule expectations. So when you bring someone new in, it's really important to say, this is who we are as a team. In fact, when I send the culture camp notes afterwards, I create, I have the fun picture, you know, where everybody's having kind of brought up about you never have pictures of people crying. Well, no, I don't go, hey, could you hold that for a moment so I can take a picture? Because I'd like to share that. But come on, I wish you would, but go ahead. <laughs> but here's the thing. So then they have, this is how we communicate with each other. Here at here at Dr. Wonderful's office, this is how we communicate. Um, here when there's conflict, this is how we do this. This is These are all the agreements that they created that put in a very workable format. So when if you got mad at me, I would say, Teresa, help me understand. Those are my magic words I use all the time. Let me understand why you're upset when this was the agreement that we said right here, this is who we are at Dr. Wonderful's office. Got it. Okay. You, you have a choice. And, and I think about this and probably the best analogy that I like for it is I visualize everybody on the team is holding like that net. Like if you were all firemen, you're holding the net to catch someone who's going to jump off. Yeah. You're all holding the net. When you elect to not support a standard, whether it's a soft skill or hard you're in essence taking your hands off the net. Uh, gotcha. If you're not holding on to the net and supporting, you're not supporting. You have to make a choice. Do you want to hold the net or not? I don't want your job more for you than you do. You have to make a choice. So let's go back to burnout for a second. Actually, let's talk about burnout in general because you know during the pregame show, you and I were discussing the fact that we're losing a lot of good people. You and I are very tied into the whole management community. Adam, we're like, we're like the ADOM alumni, I think, at this point. Like, we're always there, right? So so we know a ton of people, and I know people that are leaving all the time. They just want to do something different. Chapter members that are just like, oh, yeah, I left dentistry. And it's just, it's very heartbreaking for me because I do love this industry. But COVID made them default tax experts, PPE experts, hiring experts. I know a lot of managers that did not stop working at all during right. the shutdown. In fact, they were the only ones working. So there's that burnout. 
I'm not saying doctors did nothing. Let's focus on managers for a second. They became that all-encompassing superhero that you talk about in your classes. Can you just talk about that superhero mentality just for a second You know, and how it can be a little bit debilitating? It really is. So what, what happens is no one knew what to do. I hate to even use the word uncertainty because these uncertain times are so overused. It's one of my least favorite words now. However, there was so much uncertainty. We didn't have a end in sight, yeah. right? So they would start to do this and then they start to do this. So they kind of, it built on it. It wasn't like here, here's the job description you're going to have during the COVID pandemic and it's going to last this long. Well, there was nothing like that, right? So they did and then they heard about this and then through the community of eight on that, a lot of them were sharing, well, I'm doing this, I'm doing this. So part of the burnout comes from, honestly, office managers stepping up into it because that's what they do. That's what they do. And it became so overwhelming, they didn't know who to reach out to, right? The other part was the doctors didn't know what else to do as well. So they said, yes, go ahead. I think there were things, though, that hindsight is twenty twenty, right? That could have been done differently. For example, there were many managers who worked through the whole thing and the team did not, and they were paid and the manager was paid, but there was no really differences and the manager worked. Yeah. I think that there, there is a compensation, honestly, that would have made a big difference if there would have been a appreciation compensation for that. I agree with you. I also think that, again, so, so much of this was fear and unknown that people just stepped up to it. I think that people need to breathe instead of react now because now they're coming down off this and like, okay, I'm done. I'm mad. It's like, no, no, now it's time to reset and go, okay, let's really look at my job, what I'm doing now, what can I let go of and what's more realistic. And people get burned out because they're, they're, they can never get their work done. You know, their schedule's too full. They get burned out because nothing ever changes, right? They get burned out because they get compared or something like that, you know? So it's really about figuring out what do we need to do versus going away. I will tell you, there are a lot of people, now this is going to sound not so loving, but there are a lot of people that it was time for them to leave dentistry. Oh, yeah, no, that's fact. So here's the thing. I still think dentistry is one of the most phenomenal industries there is. I think we do amazing things. I love the industry. I love the people. We're getting an influx of other people coming into our industry that are excited about it. Yeah. So that's fresh blood. That's excitement level. I mean, we got spoiled a little bit too. And I understand no different than I was saying this to Steve the other day, my husband, I said, you know, I didn't realize how good I had flying until now. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I said, you know, everything was my flights now. I mean, every Sunday I'm getting noticed how this has moved to this and this is, I mean, everything's around so much. It's crazy compared to, and I thought I used to complain before. We didn't know how good I had it, right? Mm. I think that sometimes we get where we get used to something and we take it for granted. And yes, there was a burnout period. And yes, there were many doctors who took advantage of it. And, and some purposely, some out of ignorance or awareness. And I think though now, instead of walking away, managers and team members, it's like sit down with your doctor and say, hey, okay, we got through this rough spot. It was a whirlwind. We were juggling 20 plates at one time, but that's not the speed I want to work at anymore. You know, is this something we can change? And if they're not willing to, then then they have a choice. Then they can decide, but at least give them a choice because I don't know where they're going to go other than unemployment stand at home, that it's going to be stress-free. 
Well, yeah, definitely nothing is, even at home, it's stress-free. It's not stress-free, you know, so. Cats and dogs, you know. Yeah, my dogs are the only thing that's keeping me from, you know, (laughs) going crazy. Here's another thing too. I know you said there's a new influx of people coming in and I'm looking forward to that new blood and, and new attitudes and all that, but I don't think we have enough of it. I worry that we're not attracting enough people into the industry. I was talking to Kevin Henry about this. I texted to my little cousin who just graduated high school. I was like, oh, you should consider dentistry, blah, 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 earning potential this. And, you know, gave her all sorts of information, crickets through text. And she's a texter. Crickets through text meant, what the heck is she? I'm not going into dental. So there's nothing like sexy about dental. We need to change that. Somebody's got to do it. There's too many other jobs that pay similarly, that are less stressed, have full benefits and are appealing. And I think we need to really we need to catch up on that. We really do. And I, I, that's a hard pill for a lot of people to swallow, but we are not competitive as an industry anymore. We're just not. And you've said a mouthful. That's exactly what it's about. You know, when I hear people saying, well, the new people, they want this much money and I can't, other people are making it. And I said, so this is going to be a cost adjustment for you. I mean, here's really, and I think back to years ago when there was a major shortage. I mean, this was more than years. This was decades and decades ago. Mm. Stuff when you get older. It's not a year, it's decades. I know, you have to adjust and you're like, oh my God, who was in presidency at the time? Yeah. Oh my God. Like years ago. But there's <laughs> a massive shortage of hygienists and then that shot the price up. Yes. For a long time though, they weren't a whole, they weren't paid a whole lot more than an assistant, right? It was, it it's was true. more synergistic. And then all of a sudden it changed. And I think that the value there, when we start to look at what an asset the team is in a trained team and all they need to know. I mean, I work with a lot of oral surgery practices too. Oh my gosh. I mean, seriously, the amount of information that they have to know to do, it's, it's a highly trained individual. So we need to start treating them as that. And I think that that's part of the deal. I think that they're, they have to be competitive financially. Even if you love the profession, if you're, not making, if you're not making what you need to make to live a good life, you're not going to stay. You have to do what's best for your family. Right. And as much as I love my boss, if I don't have retirement benefits, and I'm making less, what's going on here? What's wrong with me? Right. And I think that that's, you know, when the whole insurance and, you know, it's still, it's so funny. People go, well, we don't pay insurance. I'm like, you know what? Just say you pay insurance. Even if you don't have a plan, pay them a certain amount to it and get that off the table. I mean, cause you might be losing a great team member, which is a minimal amount in comparison when you start to look at how valuable they are, or you hear this all the time, my team member, and here, here's another reason you see burnout and disengagement. My team member has reached their cap. I'm like, really? Their salary cap, yeah, you mean? Salary. Like how much they're willing to pay? Oh, geez. And how, how good is this? Oh, they're excellent. They're like, they're amazing. Oh, really? Great. Okay. So you're going to let this person go because, because no matter how hard they work, they can't make any more. I go, how would you like it? If I told you, I don't care what you do next year, you're capped. That's you can't make it. I'm like, well, but I'm the doctor. And I said, good for you. Well, they're the hygienist or they're the assistant. And I said, if they're that good, I go, and they make a big difference in your practice. How could you possibly have a salary cap? I wish people would go through two mandatory things in their lives. Retail, working in retail and working for a cutthroat company, like the traditional corporate that everybody likes to demonize, like actually go work for one of those people and see what it's like. Because you need to be competitive. You need right. to be competitive nowadays. It drives me crazy a little bit, but you know, that's a whole different podcast. Do you remember what your starting salary was? Mine was eight, eight. I think I might've been seven or $8 an hour. Yeah. I remember getting a raise to 10 because he took me straight from eight to 10. And I thought, 
I, I, that was it. I was like, I'm working for this guy forever. Holy cow. What a great boss. And, and it was just because he was making more money and he was like, holy cow. And honestly, that's how he kept me. I got to be honest. I tell him all the time, you bribe me. <laughs> well, but, but so he shared in the profits. So, and that's the thing. Yes. We see that when you're, when I'm talking about building that culture, your team has to feel like they're valuable. And yet that means you put your money where your mouth is. You can't just say, gee, gee, Teresa, gee, Judy K, you're swell. Uh, but I'm going to keep all this because we worked, we made all this. It's like, no, no, you got to share it. You got to share the profits. And yes, I know you invested highly and I know you've got to get a lot back. I understand that. However, you can do little things that would make a huge difference for your team. Absolutely. I mean, you do get to a point where you're overhead. You have to really keep that in, in mind. I get that. But there's something else that happened too as managers. I don't know if you had this. I'm sure you did. I came in at eight. So maybe five years later, I was hiring people at like 14, 12, $14. I started $8 an hour. She's asking for $12. And nowadays you have people saying, you know, managers are like, I started at 18 and this person wants 35. And I, you can't do that. You cannot compare that. But do you hear that too? Oh, yeah. Well, and that's, so here's where it's not where you started. It's not how long you've been there. It's like, it is where, where the market is at. I mean, it truthfully is. And I'm going to go back again too. If people say, if you enthusiastically like all your team members, then they're deserving of what the current wage is or even more because they've been there, right? If you have team members that are problems, they shouldn't be on your, on your team, truthfully. Right. So that means you haven't addressed the problem. Instead, you got to look at, and, and this COVID has changed things greatly. And, and people just have to understand that those old percentages that accountants came up with is this should be the percentage of your team. That's not realistic anymore. Human uh, assets cost a whole lot more than what they did 20 years ago. And they're still playing with the same numbers. Yeah. They're still saying this percentage for this, or, or if you looked at all total overall compensation for a team, it shouldn't be more than, I think it's like 29 or 30% or whatever it is. I always hear under 30. But it, if it's not this, then it's 20, 22, 23. And so they play it. It's like, and they go, oh, we can't do this. We can't hire. We can't do that. And I go, wait a minute, but you want exceptional service. You want this kind of coverage. You want this and this and this. It doesn't work for that. You know, you, you got to make a choice. It's very interesting, our margins in dentistry. And I know this isn't really culture or anything like that, but you've been doing this long enough and, and you hear the, the stuff too. Our margins in dentistry, we're expected to be, you know, at certain things, 30%, like you just said, for overhead. And then, you know, you've got all this other stuff. You're supposed to have at least, what, 50% total overhead. Like that's the goal, right? Is what? Well, that's the, that's the golden, yeah. And I know when I started out there, you know, I was working with offices that weren't very profitable and they were like, you know, 60% overhead or whatever. And they would dream of 50% overhead, right? Then I went to an insurance industry meeting and I sat next to a gentleman who's been a dental consultant for a gazillion years, earned his uh, dental reviewing consultant for claims, owned his own practice and all that. And he said, Dentists are ridiculous. I remember this conversation like it was yesterday. I remember his breath because it was bad too. But dentists are ridiculous. <laughs> dentists are ridiculous because they have this huge profit margin and they complain about, you know, when we lower fees or giving us 20% or 30%, I guess he thought I was really like in the industry. And he goes, this is ridiculous. You know, operating costs in corporates and restaurants and auto shops and all that, they're at single digit margins. And dentists are over here complaining about you know, 50% profit. And he said, they need to wake up. And I always thought of that when I keep hearing these overhead remarks, it is nice to make good money. It is a very profitable industry, but 
Dennis asks me all the time, how can insurance companies squeeze us like this? Because they're looking at your margins, which are higher than most other margins. And that's something that as a business person, not an emotional dentist, but as a business person, they're going to look at that. So we could, to your point about paying a little bit extra, we could pay a little bit extra, but there's this, like you said, that, that limiting statistic that, that people put out there. So I will always say, well, are, are they are they worth a team member and a half? Do they do as much? Do they as oh? And sometimes I go, they they do the work of two team members. And I said, so are you paying them the, the salary of two team members? Well, well, no, no, I got lucky. No, no, there's a cap, right? <laughs> and then I laugh about it. I go, wait a minute. So if you had two other regular team members, you would take two of them to do what this person does. I said, you have a lot of a lot of room to grow. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's always about, and, and I always say, I'm not trying to give your money away. I'm trying to keep your money and keep you working with a team that you're actually excited to come to work with. And I said that you have to be realistic about this. You know, people want, they want all these things. And that's why looking at your schedule right now, if you're really short staffed, most important right now is sit down with your team and talk about what you realistically can do without burning them out. Because until you get someone else um, trained in and it's going to take some time you maybe have to slow down a little bit. Yeah. And that's okay because what you don't want to do is you don't want to lose your good team members. And I think that's the whole burnout thing that we were talking about with managers even leaving. If somebody's listening and their eyes are leaking a little bit, you know, because something in the air and they're thinking, oh my gosh, it sounds a lot like me. What do you say to that person? So what I would say to them is I would say, sit down with your doctor and have a heart to heart. Be realistic. First of all, um, before you do that, though, reflect on where's your time spent? What are you doing? How can you spend it more effectively? And what I always share with managers is at least 30% of your time needs to be free to work with team members, not tasks. Yes. And so much of their, their tasks, so the team is an interruption, so they can't even resolve the things that are happening as they're happening, right? It's about being realistic and stop being superwoman or superman and be realistic about who can do this and let go of that. Oh, but they don't do it as good as I do. Mm. Well, no, and you didn't do it as good as you do at the beginning either, you know? So it really is about letting go of some of that control and being realistic with the doctors. Most of the doctors that I've worked with over the years are more than happy to hear because they don't want to lose their manager. If they really like working with their manager, they want to accommodate them. But the managers and managers, I love you. And you have this, I got this syndrome. Mm -hmm. I got this, I got this. And then all of a sudden you're exhausted and you're upset at the doctor. Well, they don't know, they don't understand how many spinning plates you have. And the most important thing you could do is have weekly meetings with your doctor talking about what you're working on, where you're at, what you need help with, all of that. And that's going to keep you in touch. Right. Because doctors, if if they don't see you stressing out, they're going to think everything's great. And you've always handled everything. So why wouldn't you be handling it now? And And it's really important to keep each other in the loop. What's important? Here's what I'm working on now. And doctors will come and say, hey, I need you this or this. Then it's about being realistic realistic and saying, hey, I've got this and this and this going. Is this a bigger priority? If I can't get it all done, because maybe there isn't someone you can delegate to, maybe someone else can handle it because of the privacy or whatever, then set a timeline that's being realistic and say, well, okay, I'll put this off till next week or the following week, or maybe this doesn't even have to happen. Yeah, it's an ebb and flow. And I think that managers, in fact, I don't think I know that managers that I call them the we team leadership meetings, when they start scheduling those weekly meetings, it makes all the difference in the world. That could be 20 minutes and it's a set time. They don't sacrifice for patient care or anything. It's always the same. And it's a check in saying, what are you working on? What's going on? How many plates you got spinning? Where do you need help? Um, Here's my focus. Here's what I need from you, doctor. Doctor, here's what I need from you, manager. 
any concerns with team, any concern with patients, marketing, all of those kind of things. It's just all there. It's a check-in. It's a, and here's what I've got. Okay, good, go. Makes all the difference in the world. How do you move from being a very busy manager to, you know, hiring more people and then breaking yourself from that task-oriented mindset because now you want to be a more of a strategic manager. You want to see more of the big picture. You want to set big goals for the practice. How do you get yourself out of that mindset? Do you see people having issues with that? So it's again, it starts with leadership. I'm going to go back to doctors. Sorry, I love you doctors. However, this is this is the ownership. <laughs> if a manager is delegating tasks and something doesn't get done, it is not the manager's fault right? Mm. We say, well, it's okay. You can delegate, but then it comes back and going, no, no, no. You're all responsible for this. It's like, no, it is a concern with that team member. So then it's a different conversation. So if I'm the manager and I'm delegating and this, I'm delegating to you, Teresa, and you're just not getting it. It happens. (laughs) So instead of the doctor getting upset, because normally the doctors will come and say, well, I hired you to make sure these things don't happen. It's like, uh, -uh, that's not how this is. The conversation needs to be different and saying, well, so Judy K, is this something that Teresa, you think Teresa's going to get? Is there something I can do to help Teresa? Where are we at on this? See, it's a combined, it's a co-leadership. And then we talk about it and what do we need to do to help Teresa get this? Not why didn't you get this fixed? Because doctors like to do the flyby, drop conversation, (laughs) fix this, do that, don't do that. And then it's like, okay, it's free. It's free for my hands. And then they say, well, why didn't you do it? It's like, well, because there's only one of me. They need to say that to the doctor. But they are part of, okay, love you managers. A lot of you are martyrs. Yes, that's true. We love to be that this person does it all. I don't have to even think about anything. They take care of everything. They get rid of all the stress and worries. Big mistake. If I don't do it, nobody else will. Oh, I know. No, but it's a shared, it's shared stress. It's shared worries. It's shared, it's conversation that we go. So when a doctor comes to you manager and say, how come this isn't done? Say, I don't know. Let's talk about how we can get that done. Don't own it. There you go. I love it. It's a, it's a we versus what do we need to do? Not what do I need to do? I love that. Okay. So hopefully you guys pulled over and wrote that down and you're going to bookmark that and, and go back to that because what she said is so important. You are not in this alone. You shouldn't be in this alone. No. Let's go a step further with that martyr thing because one thing that I found with, with managers, and I say this to them, and this is when the eyes start leaking more, you cannot love the practice more than the doctor does. And that's a hard thing to hear because I think they know it and they resent it, but they don't know it's okay to feel that way. If you're trying to fix the practice and the doctor has no interest in it, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're going home and you're complaining and your husband or your spouse or your wife is just like, I'm tired of this. So you're bothering them with this and the doctor's doing whatever it is, la la land. So what do I do if I'm that manager that's like, this is killing me. I need to get out. How do I know when I've done everything I can? Again, it goes back to communication. We really don't spend the time communicating. We wait until we blow up and then we talk about it because we're afraid. We don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. And some of us even have the ridiculous thought that they'd fire us or something, which Mm. is ridiculous because they're not going to let you go because they need you so bad, right? It really is about having a conversation and saying, I don't feel like we're aligned here. Let's talk about it. You know, what's important to you? You know, I bring things up and you'll agree to it with me sometimes, but then when it comes to the team, you won't support it, mm. you know, and that, and that undermines me and it sabotages any growth. right. So Thank it's God. really, so we need to be on the same page. This is your practice and managers, you have to understand it is not your practice. It isn't. It's true. You can love it. You can, but in the end, 
It all stems from the doctor. What is important to you, doctor? And that's why it's so important when you're interviewing or deciding if you're going to take a management position and you haven't been a manager in that office, but they're changing your position is sit down and have that heart to heart conversation about doctor, where do you want to take the practice? How important is it for this and this to happen? You know, what's important to you to see if you're aligned? Because if you're not, it's going to be constant stress. Mm-hmm. And I agree with you, Teresa, you can't want more for the practice than what the doctor does. You just can't. I see it over and over again. I, I do too. I'm so worried he's going to go to jail if he keeps billing this way. What are you doing? You've said it. You've been working on this. What are you doing? Right. Yeah, there has to be almost a come to Jesus moment, but I'm not going to do that when they're standing in line after a class. They need to really talk about somebody with about this. I laugh about that all the time because somebody will bring it up and then I'll get about 40 more questions. The yeah, but yeah, yeah, but. But what if, mm-hmm. oh yeah, but I love my team. Well, okay. So, so you have a choice as a manager, you either choose now fraudulent, a little different. Yeah. Okay. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but, you know, like getting people like, maybe you agree and this is what we're going to do for standards and the doctor doesn't support it. Right. Well, okay. So doctor, I'm confused in our conversation. You said this was important to you yet. When, when Susie asked you about it, you didn't support it. Is this something you want to support? Cause if not, I'll take it off the table. So here's the thing, managers, you either have to decide that you're okay co-leading with them in the direction they want to take the practice, or you need to go somewhere else. So either readjust your, your expectations. And, and not everything. And you have to understand that what you think is the right way, there's a million ways to run a practice. And as long as it's legal and ethical and within licensure, it's just an opinion. There you go. Well, hopefully that gets some, some wheels turning, because I do think a lot of people right now are questioning whether they're in the place that they want to be in. So we're going to step out of dentistry for a second because you and I both know people that are like, hey, I'm out. I want to go do, not out of the industry, but out of the office. Now they want to be consultants and speakers. Are you getting a lot of calls from managers that are like, okay, I'm ready to take the next step. And you're like, hello, COVID. (laughs) That's how I was last year. Like I felt bad because I knew a couple of people that had just started their consulting business, like maybe months before COVID hit. And they're just like, what the heck? I would have been yeah. devastated if that had happened. And it was already devastating and we had established businesses, you know? So oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you have people coming up and saying, I think I'm ready. I think I want to do this. What's going on there? Well, things always look more glamorous on the outside, right? <laughs> I, I love what I do. I honestly love it. However, there are a lot of things that I don't necessarily enjoy that come as part of it. You know, mm-hmm. the travel, the things like that. People think it's romantic until they do it a few times, right? I think that they also thought that you just as a consultant went in and you told the practice what to do and they did it. No, mm. it's so different than you as a manager. You have those that do, those that don't. And you really have to work on on your delivery and figure out what works for one office doesn't work for another. So it's about being very flexible, very focused in that. I think that they're finding that, you know, I mean, there might be some that have gone to work for companies that have been busy and got busy right away. But I think there's a lot of them that try to do it on their own that are going, whoa, this isn't so easy. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long time. I don't know about you, but before I really considered myself that I was anywhere that I was proud of being was probably five years into it. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. The first five years, we don't know what we're doing. Oh, you know, I was helping doctors. I was working with them, but I was doing the stuff that I knew I was really good at. Then they started asking for more, you know, because they enjoyed working with you. And you really had to take a look at what you really like doing. but you, you do have that. I mean, that imposter syndrome is for real, for real. Oh, yeah. And I remember there were days when I would finish up with client cycles and 
I check my email, do a test email to myself because where's the emails? Like, do I test your phone? Like my phone? Oh, okay. It works. It's just nobody's calling. That's kind of a bummer. And (laughs) so you have those moments and there are a lot of options for people who want to go past the office and go into other jobs, but you have to understand the risk that's involved there. And it's a little scary. It's scary. It's rewarding. I love what I do. I know you love what you do. Imagine that we're back at SCN, you and I meeting for the first time. You were in your jean jacket. And here's what happened is, is I go back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I, this is not going to work. And, and this is too, too hard and too difficult. I think if that happened to me today with COVID and the risk and the travel, I don't know if I would necessarily do it. I think I would find a way to find a more stable job. Right. I just want to say it's not for the faint of heart. If you're kind of a risk taker, then yes. But if you need steady income, if you need predictability, this is not the industry for you. No, and some people think that it's a way to retire. Mm. And I've heard this and I went, well, you know, so they can kind of wind down and do what they want to do. I'm like, you're not going to be winding down until you wind up first. Yes. And that's going to take, so you have to be realistic about, I had somebody call me, you know, that wanted to retire in about five years. And I said, you're not even going to be off the ground. And I said, maybe you will be a little bit, but nothing to, I said, you'll be losing so much ground than just working and adjusting, you know, how you feel at your office. Honestly, Teresa, the biggest stress is all self-manufactured. It's from within. And if we start letting go of the things that we have to control, that um, this has to be this way or else, and we start looking at it differently, it makes a big difference. I had this conversation with a good friend of mine over the weekend who was a little stressed about her job. And I said, you know, here's where I sit. I look at it that I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm 61 this year. And wow, I would never have thought, holy cow, you look a lot of alcohol. You look amazing. (laughs) I digress. (laughs) I look at this and I think about I'm on the last spiral of mine. You know, I don't have 40 years. I don't have 30 years. I don't have 20 years. Will I probably speak or do something when I'm 80? Yeah, if I'm so coherent and they don't throw me off the stage. I'll be there with my walker going, hey, you know, but I won't be working this. So I probably have, I don't know, somewhere five to seven, maybe 10 at the most realistically work years, right? Maybe. If you want it. If I want it, right. Exactly. So I'm going to enjoy that because that's just a small snippet of my life. So the things that might have stressed me out earlier in my career, no longer stress me out. This is, I realize this is my, I'm, I'm up over the hill and I'm going to make sure that I'm enjoying the view. Right. 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 And it's all here. It's all perspective. It's all up in your head. So things that bother me, things that like the other day, you'll, you'll laugh at this. I never, 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 never until this time book like this, where I have two speaking engagements, one day, one day, the next uh, day, never, ever. I like a calm serene life. <laughs> but I did because I wanted to speak at both. Yeah. And and I like both of them. And so I didn't want to turn it around, turn it and I was like, okay, I'll have a half day here. I can get it. Well then it changed and it was the next well my flight has changed a total of seven times now in between. Not the flight getting to the first location, but in between to get from one location to the next. Seven times. In fact, I went Delta three changes to Southwest. Southwest then just moved mine to an entirely different day. Oh my gosh. So I canceled Southwest, went back to Delta two more times. I'm finally on one now that I think might work. Oh my gosh. 
And now at one time I would have went, oh, this is so crazy. This is ridiculous that I have to do this. And now I'm just like, well, this is kind of like a, an interesting challenge. Let's see how many more times it changes between now and then. Yeah, it's like a game show now. <laughs> it is. But I know that I could have gotten really wound up about it. And for me, um, most important is that I'm loyal to my clients that I show up. And so even if I have to, I'll drive. I'll figure it out. Right. I will be there regardless. So I've let that all go. But I'm like, okay, how many more flights will change? <laughs> yes. And, and I was triggered for you. So even though you weren't stressed out, I was very stressed out just hearing your story. The other thing, too, that's kind of stunning when you get outside of your own office, if you're a superstar manager, like we know so many, and doctor too, you think that you're going to be able to implement what you did successfully into another office and it never, ever works because, first of all, you have no idea how different offices are until you start getting out there and learning them. Like the worst office ever you can imagine, it's a hundred times worse. <laughs> that's that's kind of how I felt. Did you find that like you can't, like you went back to your hotel room, you're like, how do they function? That's how I was many times. <laughs> Yeah, I can think back. I can think back early on. I think it might have been 2008, maybe 2007, 2008. And I was just starting. And I called Steve and I go, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and here, here's my husband. He always goes, you've got this, babe. You know what to do. You got it. But I was like, whoo, this, this one was tough. Yeah. And it's very true because, again, we take our relationships for granted as well. Mm. Your doctor may not do everything you like. But in a lot of cases, they've been very supportive for you to get where you are, to do what you're doing, right? So you have to pick your battles as well. How important is this? Is this just your opinion or is it detrimental? And if it's detrimental or sabotaging the practice or the patient care or anything like that, then put it together in a factual, not an emotional, you know, go back to get rid of the drama. You know, I deal with drama all the time. People go, how can you deal with drama? I said, I don't, I get rid of it. I look at specifics and I look at realistic things to do to remove it. Yeah. So the same with this, if someone is not agreeing with you or wanting to support, most doctors want to take their practice in a growing you know, process. They just sometimes don't connect the dots. So if you can show where this or this makes this difference, it might be all they need to hear. And then of course, there are always those that are happy just where they're at. It's funny because when I forget who it was, but we were at either an ADMC or SCN meeting and one consultant, I wish I could remember. She told me that offices are like an episode of Hoarders and you go in and you see, and you're just like, you want to walk out, you want to turn around and walk right out, but you roll up your sleeves and dig in. This is after I stopped doing full-time consulting, I was doing more speaking. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, I'm so glad I don't do that anymore. But she's right. It's a lot like that when you run into, not all, but when an office is bad, it's it's not just a little bad. It's usually a mess, a hot mess. For those of you looking to do some consulting and, and go out there and share your wisdom, just because it's the best wisdom in the world doesn't mean it's going to land. You got to clean out all the muck first. And you've got you've to pick your battles. So, you know, for me, and I'm, I'm probably more of a hybrid of a coach slash consultant than strictly a consultant. I don't come with my book of, here's how you got to do it, the book of Judy K. I mean, I've written a few books. I was going to say, you have three books. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll tell you. But, you know, so I, so I come in and I'm always asking the doctors, and that's why I meet with them at night for leadership meetings saying, here's what I'm observing. Is this important to you? I'm always going to check in with them. I'm never going to create something with the team that they're not willing to support. And I always look at it this way. They're not going to do everything I say. If they, if they do 50%, if they do 20%, still an improvement. Absolutely. And that's what we have to look at. And you take baby steps. I have worked with a few that have done almost 100%. And I, 
I mean, I'm just like, wow, that was amazing. Just like, wow, I'm going to have a bottle of wine because I'm the best coach out there. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I'm waiting for the shoe to drop and go, okay, now what's going to go wrong? (laughs) It really is. It's it's about adjusting our expectations. If I can improve it even a little bit, then we've succeeded. It's awesome. Baby steps, you're right, because you can't put that kind of pressure on yourself. So baby steps is good. Or the office or the team, they're busy already. You know, I was talking to somebody about software the other day and they were telling me about, oh, this is great and this is great. And I go, yes, but you have to remember they're busy doing stuff. They're not, they're not going to spend all day on your software. <laughs> and I said, you know, they're not. It might be the greatest thing, but they're not going to utilize it in that capacity because it's one little tiny part of their day. Right. And they may want to do it every day for two weeks, but they're going to log on once and then they're going to get distracted again. So you can't think that that's going to, you're right. You're absolutely right. And the software needs to be utilized, like you said, but I think the big takeaway for me here, I mean, there's so many takeaways here, but the, the whole thing about the team not being utilized, I think that needs to be just shouted from the rooftops. We don't, we don't, you're right. We have kind of these weird borders and we, we think cross training means you can put on scrubs and step in and do some you know, spit sucking if they're called in sick or whatever, but there's, there's a lot more to that. And that would really help a lot. So, okay. I knew we were going to go long. Here's the thing. You are all over. So people need to come and see you speak. You speak all over, you do the culture camps all over and you have the books, which we didn't even talk about, but go to her website. I'll put it in the show notes, go buy all her books or go to Adom. And I'm sure there'll be a book signing with her book. There will be. There you go. And Adam is going to be amazing. I can't wait to see you there. That'll be good. So big hugs and all that. Um, So basically you are everywhere and they just need to find you. And you always do your Ray of the Day. I like that on your Facebook page. So go and check that out. And I hope that you all consider doing a culture camp if you think it's needed, because I hear amazing things. I hear amazing things for what you do. And the feedback is always good. And I guess if you will come back on again, Judy Kay, I would love for you to come back on again. I would love to. We we never run out of things to talk about. It's true. Thank you again. I so much appreciate it. I will put all of the links to how to find her wherever she is. And I always appreciate listeners that you spend some time with me. We're all super busy. So thank you for making time for me today. The show notes will have any links that we referenced in this episode. You can also find links for my book and for my live events and webinar schedule. I speak often around the country on management and insurance issues. Come hang out with me in one of my classes. I promise you'll laugh and learn.